Hello and welcome to Tales from the Ruther Library, podcast coming directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. My name is Dan Galadner and I will be your host today. I'm here along with Troy Eller-English. Hi, Troy. Hi. How you doing? Uh, I'm spectacular. Okay, this is part two, right? Part two. All right, today's podcast is part two of an interview that Megan Courtney did uh, with Jeremy Malloy, a postdoc from Trent University, who is researching drug use in the workplace from the 1960s and the 1990s. Part one, uh, you can go back and listen to it, focused on a program that a UAW local did in the early 1970s that tried to curb heroin use in, in a plant and a treatment program. In part two, Dr. Malloy talks about the railroad industry, and he used the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employee records that we have here at the Ruther Library. He'll be talking about the Reagan administration's war on drugs that shifted from the 1970s view of drug use as something that is treatable to more of identification and incarceration. Anyway, let's get going on part two with Megan Courtney and Dr. Malloy. So an interesting aspect of this to me is that, you know, you're kind of looking at the ways um, in which a, a person's inner life, personal life intersects with their work. Um, in many ways, you know, drug use is something that some people may consider part of their personal lives, not part mm -hmm. of their working lives. Mm -hmm. um, so can you talk a little bit about how the impacts of this kind of intervention, whether it's from, you know, a union perspective or an employer perspective or a, com a partnership between those two, how, how does that change the way that, that workers exist in the workplace and, and the line between personal and work lives? Yeah, I mean, I think the... I think the concept of a line between personal and work life is a historical one, um, and it is something you know that has developed over time, and it's been fought over. And and um, where the line is, you see us fighting over it all the time today. You know, for example, you know now we now we all have cell phones. So if your boss texts you at eight o'clock at night, are you is it okay to text him, or can you go back to watching Netflix? You know, like now that's an issue that you have to carry with you, or people on vacation who don't stop working. Uh, you know, there's a law passed recently in France that says that workers don't have to answer emails on the weekend or after five because that's they're trying to carve out that space. But that space is a created, constructed space. The space of what is private to me as a worker and what is the property of my employer? What are they buying when they buy my labor power? It's like a really fundamental question. Uh, and, you know, we go back you know, all the way here in Detroit, uh, you know, with his plan for workers who receive $5 a day. I mean, a lot of the times, if I, if I, unless I'm wrong, that involved home visits, mm -hmm. you know, and, yeah. and to make sure that that was going to a, what was considered a moral and decent home life. Uh, so that, I mean, how, per how personal is that? I mean, your boss is coming over to see how clean your sheets are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, that's always been an area of struggle, and and I, I I'm, one of the things I'm finding out so far, I think, is that if you want to investigate this area of struggle, which I think is, as I said, it's been around a long time, but I will also have my cake and eat it too by saying it's an increasingly important development in work lives since the 1960s and 70s, mm -hmm. when companies are responding to critiques that they don't care for workers as individuals, that they're turning everybody into robots by trying to say workers can express themselves more. They're also looking for more flexibility from employees. They're looking for more initiative from employees. They're looking for employees to increasingly identify themselves with their employer as a brand and be promoting them on and off the job. All of these things that are like second nature to today's work environment, to the students that are 
you know, entering class today. Uh, they've just been expected to their whole life. These are major changes in neoliberal capitalism and a more flexible, individualized kind of model of work in capitalism. And I think that a key nexus to investigate that is in the concern over addiction in capitalism. So you asked me earlier about some of the things that took place once drugs became a concern. I would argue one of the other things that took place is companies really saw this as a place where not only they could, but they should and they had to intervene in employees' personal lives. Hmm. And I think in one sense, they saw it as a benefit for them because it is a way to respond to the 60s critiques that they didn't care about their workers in a way that shows that they are caring about their workers, but also promises to pay bottom line dividends in terms of absenteeism, productivity, employee turnover, all of these things. Mm. Um, and it is this kind of unprecedented uh, in incursion into the personal lives. As you said, the, you know, somebody's relationship with an addiction is, you know, whether you define it as a mental illness or a spiritual condition or whatever, it's a very intimate part of somebody's life. And now you have the employer providing services or you have people being diagnosed as addicts by people who are their supervisor, who they might have gone out for beers last week. So it is an enormous um, challenge. It becomes this kind of new frontier for class conflict that I'm investigating that happens in the 70s and 80s. And I think through it, we can read a lot of the other uh, frontiers of class conflict about people's people's mind and soul and body that exists under neoliberal capitalism, whether it's, uh, you know, drug testing uh, and, you know, what is privacy, um, what is privacy in terms of social media surveillance or surveillance of employees' social lives. All of these things kind of come out of, I argue, uh, the concern over drugs and that it quickly expands into employee assistance, which is a concern about an employee's spiritual and psychosocial well-being. Wow, that's a, that's a fascinating connection. Uh, okay. So, okay. So I know that you talked some about, um, you've, you've really dug deep into what's going on with the UAW, what's mm -hmm. going on in, um, sort of private sector industrial workplaces, but I wonder if you've looked at all about, uh, public sector employees, um, or public sector workplaces and compared the two. Uh, I have a bit. One of the things that I hope to do with this project, I mean, the first project um, being as it was a dissertation and I had you know, to do it and, and under a <laughs> right. certain time period, I decided quickly once I got here uh, to the Ruther that there was so much on auto and violence that that's what I was going to focus on. So I dropped like I was going to do post offices as well. And mm. I had to drop that. Uh, this I really wanted to do a larger study. And one of the things that's come to me being here this week is that this is really suited to study um, cross workplaces, which I think is important in labor history. I think it's something we need to do more of. Like what is common in workplaces rather than what's different about a service sector workplace versus an office versus, uh, you know, a, a Starbucks versus a factory. I think there's actually some really interesting things in common that, that are helpful for us to get our minds around as scholars. And this is one of those because you see I've looked through so many 1970s and 80s drug policies at workplaces, alcohol policies, employee assistance policies, and they all, to almost, you know, once it becomes standardized in the mid to late 70s, they all read almost exactly the same in terms of their approach, which is interesting because workers, you know, might use substances differently depending on the demands of their job. For example, if you're, you know, a, a waitress in a nightclub versus a truck driver, right, versus a nurse, like, I mean, there you could see just quickly how you might use substances differently and for different reasons and it might have different consequences. Um, 
so what I've been trying to do is, is yeah, expand. Um, and one of the ways I've been able to do that is uh, the vertical files upstairs are great. Uh, there's a vertical file on drug, drug issues in the workplace in the 1980s and in the 1990s. And those cover media coverage of all kinds of workplaces. Police and fire are a big one, office workers. Um, and because it's also a question of, of class power, right, and, and dignity in terms of drug testing. For example, who who who? What kind of workers have to do this, right? I mean, that's a that's a concern. One of the collections I've been looking at this week, um, which is kind of an interesting private slash public workplace, is the railroad industry. Which, oh. of course, there are a lot of private companies, but it's federally regulated to a very high degree. And so I've been looking at the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employees' mm. records. Um, they tie in nicely with the collection I was looking at last year at the Keel Center at Cornell. They have a lot of railroad stuff there. And there was a major problem in the 70s and 80s with drinking and drug abuse on the railroads. Hmm. And that was tied into, you know, a culture where you're traveling with a small group of people on a long way. Work is often very monotonous. You're often working crazy hours. You know, you're driving the train all night or you're, you know, at a, at a, at a maintenance encampment out in the middle of nowhere. And a work culture developed that was very okay with uh, alcohol and drug use on the job. And what more so, it was very not okay with you if you were uncomfortable with, say, some a co-worker's drug use saying anything about it um, because that was snitching. And what you see in the 70s and 80s and what I'm seeing in the, in the Brotherhood records upstairs there's a knowledge that this is happening. There's an all you know the, the official data on accidents in the '70s says that this is not really a factor, but everybody knows that's not true. Oh, do they do they chalk it up to some other thing on their form? Do they say, oh well, this person was tired or? I believe they? so, yeah. Okay. Or, or yeah, yeah, something something vague like that. But I, I there's correspondence up there where they're like both like you know, it's union bosses talking to to railroad leaders, and they're like, we both know this isn't true, um, and oh. we you know we both know that this is just being underreported because. Nobody like there's a variety of reasons. Liability, you know, a railroad employees faced serious liability for for drug abuse or alcohol abuse that led to a major crash and you know, the property damage involved or the loss of life. And they but they also said, like, we know we need to do something about this. And because it was a public sector industry in the sense that it is heavily federally regulated, we need to do something about it before it's done to us. And this is when you have Elizabeth Dole as the secretary of transport. She makes that a huge priority. Forgot about that. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, under the Reagan administration, who of course are themselves literally peeing into cups and being drug tested, and, mm. and saying that the drug testing should be a thing that happens in every workplace. I mean, the Reagan administration's really pushing for that, and it's a big, uh, as I think I'll argue in the book, it's a big shift in in, in employee assistance programs. It really becomes about testing and identification under the Reagan era, as opposed to treatment mm. and counseling, to an extent, and. Um, so they're trying to figure out what to do. So there's a lot happening at the same time. They're trying to put programs in, uh, the, the railroad unions, to, to address this issue. And so are the employers. And they both agree that something should happen, but they're also fighting each other about how to do it. And, and mm -hmm. you know, they also both want to protect their turf and protect their rights. And in the meantime, the government's trying to prevent put rules in. And so they're trying to massage that process. Um, and so there's this kind of interesting dynamic happening. One of the things they come up with is... There's a rule on the railroad industry called Rule G that reads something basically like any employee who reports to work under the influence of drugs or alcohol will be, you know, sent home from the day and then you face discipline for that. Okay. And that was kind of considered key why nobody snitched on anybody because, you know, somebody might lose their job. 
So they, they, they were like, how do we attack this culture? And, and I'm not sure who came up with the idea first, uh, but I have seen a lot of discussion of the idea once it's made. It was called a Rule G bypass. So the way that would work would be, let's say I'm on the job with you and, and I'm drunk. And, and you're like, we have to go from Shreveport to St. Louis on the train and I'm not having him running the brakes, right? Yeah, yeah. But you don't want to get me fired. You know, we've worked together for 10 years. You think I'm a good worker, whatever or you just don't want the blowback that would come from being considered, um, you know, a whistleblower, you could tell our boss, you know, Jeremy's drunk, he has to go home, he can't work today. And I would not get fired for that first time. They would come okay. to me and say, hey, we've heard that you, 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 know, you might be having a problem. You have a chance to go to employee assistance and get this straightened out. And that was considered something that, that you could break down that culture. And this causes uh, an enormous amount of controversy within the railroad workplace and within railroad unions because some people think it's great uh, that this is a way to address the culture of drinking and drug use on the railroads in a constructive way. Some people think that this is giving me, uh, uh, you know, in the example of me as the intoxicated worker, a free, a free crack, uh, you know, uh, that this is too lenient. Hmm. And some people think that this is institutionalizing snitching basically and this will break down class solidarity and workplace culture because you're going to turn the workplace into a bunch of workers informing on each other for alcohol and drug abuse so this is the kind of thing that they're they're trying to take um, as elizabeth dole actually said you know rules can never be enough and so they're looking at an approach uh, in in all industries public sector private sector offices it, that always comes down to the same questions. How do we identify users? How do we effectively engage them? How do we treat them? Uh, and how do we do this in a way that uh, doesn't destroy workplace rights? So is there anything that you found um, in your investigations, either kind of the first round, which you did um, about a year ago, mm -hmm. and then um, uh, more recently that just surprised you or that kind of shook your thesis or that maybe adjusted it more gently than mm -hmm. shaking? Okay, so I think one of the things that surprised me was the level of concern about this issue in the mid-1980s. This, again, if you look at the vertical files, the amount of media coverage that's happening about drug users in the workplace and, and the amount of, uh, I would argue, up to hysteria about it was is surprising to me. It was a really big issue, and I'm, I'm you know, of that time, um, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a zennial. <laughs> I just learned that last week, so now I have to throw it in every, because I was born between 77 and 83 or whatever. Oh, right. So I remember all that. I remember Pee Wee Herman telling me not to smoke crack and, you know, uh, you know, crack baby um, kind of news stories and stuff. But it was also such a big kind of fear in the workplace. So I pointed, when you talked to me about the 60s, and, and that's right, that's, the, that's one of the kind of panics, but then it just comes back so much in the 80s. And there's not really a reference to, oh, well, we were really worried about this 15 years ago when we thought all the hippies were gonna come to the workplace and, and smoke dope all day in the office, and that somehow we got around that. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's always considered a new thing. Mm -hmm. And there's a historian, David Hertzberg, who, 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 who wrote an article uh, called Reoccurring Epidemics in American History, that we need to understand drug use as like a series of kind of moral panics or a series of epidemics of drug use. And um, so I was kind of surprised by how big a deal it is. So you have employers hiring undercover police officers, you know, doing searches with dogs, like things that I, I, I was a little surprised. I knew that obviously, you know, things like urine testing and hair testing were a big issue. Mm -hmm. I did not know that people were running like sophisticated undercover operations that often involve police into the workplace. And I think that that's an interesting uh, avenue that I hope to develop here. 
because you know scholars like Heather Ann Thompson have done really good work on the development of the carceral state. Um, and I think I could supplement that work by examining the relationship between the carceral state and the workplace, mm. um, because I don't think we think of business as an actor in mass incarceration uh, enough. Um, and and I think that you know what this work shows is this kind of intersection, this fear that drugs are going to affect the workplace. Mm. And you know, there's stories, you know, not just about you know railway workers being drunk and crashing their trains, but you know, Wall Street stockbrokers are going to snort coke and then they're going to get so high they're going to put the wrong comma in one of their trades and they're going to bankrupt General Motors. You know, there's oh. all all workplaces are connected by this, which I also think is very interesting and, and a little bit surprising to me. You would have thought huh. that this might have boiled down in terms of in terms of class or gendered workplaces, more racialized workplaces, but basically there's such a widespread fear and concern about drug use in American society in the mid-1980s that's basically considered that every workplace is in danger, which I, which I was a little surprised by. Do you see that, I mean, what's driving that hysteria? Is it something that's coming from, you know, the Reagan administration? Is it more of a grassroots feeling? If I had to say, I don't feel super confident yeah. in, in answering that with, 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 with certainty, but I would say it's coming from the politicians, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I, as a child of the 80s, I do remember a lot, you know, it's on, like you said, Saturday morning cartoons. It's kind of mm -hmm. everywhere. It's inside of a gum wrapper telling you not to do, say no to drugs. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's one of those things that maybe we took for granted at the time. Um, but it's interesting to see how that intersects with uh, being at work, with um, being labeled a criminal, all of those things. And you mentioned hair testing. Yeah. Um, what kind of people are getting their hair tested in this era? Well, there's a big controversy over testing during the era mm -hmm. um, because the testing's not always reliable. Right. You know, one of the things that comes up is one of the major labs that the government is using turns out to be um, um, unethically and, and mistakenly handling samples, or one of the major labs employers are using, excuse me. Um, and so there's there's a lot of controversy over this. Um, Abby Hoffman, you know the famous '60s radical, changes. This is his major last career before his last sorry campaign before his suicide. Is he writes a book called "Steal This Urine Test," and he talks about this about like the dream of individual freedom is ending and it's ending in the workplace. Which again, I think is an interesting dynamic I'm trying to tease out because I am a Canadian American, you know, transnational comparative historian. And it's interesting that America is always held up um, ideologically as uh, a bastion of individual freedom, especially in things like gun control, healthcare, or the reason that, that there are state solutions that are not imposed is because of Americans' attachment to individual freedom. And Canadians are, are considered a lot more willing to accept, you know, limitations on our freedom for a perceived greater good. And yet, you know, in America, pre-employment drug testing became incredibly common, even though it obviously represents a infringement of individual rights for a lot of people. And in Canada, it's, it's very rare. And mm -hmm. so I was kind of trying to figure out how that happens. So the testing is not always accurate. And also it's invasive. Hair testing is seen as less invasive than urine testing. Um, and, you know, I've been reading this week uh, discussions of, you know, of employers and, and unions arguing whether urine is private or not, whether it constitutes a waste product. And they're like, well, they're not doing anything with it. <laughs> you know, you're disposing of that urine anyway, so we should be allowed to take it and test. And, and the, the court did not look kindly on that argument because, <laughs> you know, basically they said, do you close the door when you go to the bathroom? And that kind of ended, <laughs> ended that argument. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of concern about testing. And there are employees. Um, I remember one. Uh, there's a there's a African American female bus driver uh, in the in the files who are you know, wrongly they, their test is wrong mm -hmm. and they lose their job. And you know obviously there's the stigma. There's a criminal stigma attached. And and you know especially school bus drivers working with children like 
that's a serious derailment of her employment and her, her life. Uh, and so there's that concern as well. Are the tests accurate and how can we trust the tests? Um, yeah. And will the tests themselves be used uh, to harass workers, for example? A belief that like, oh, if you're causing too much trouble about you know, uh, gender inequities in the workplace, oh, all of a sudden you're taking six urine tests a year. You know, people mm-hmm. are concerned about that too. So uh, the, the, the method, not just the testing, but the method of testing and, and, and how it's done and who's carrying it out are all kind of major areas of conflict. So in that 80s period where you're seeing a greater emphasis on testing and identification of drug use um, rather than the sort of 60s and 70s mindset, which is a little bit more interested in supporting users and more of assistance uh, type mindset, do you see kind of a a rift between unions and employers in terms of how um, drugs are addressed in the workplace? Absolutely. Uh, So again and again, and again, this is one of those interesting things that it transcends the type of workplace that this is, you see employers who want to put drug testing in for a lot of reasons. Uh, I would argue power. Uh, there's a belief that there's that kind of scientific belief that, that this is this is a scientific test and therefore cannot be challenged. Um, you know, I, there's a case of a railroad worker who, who tests positive for marijuana. He says, I've never used marijuana in my life. I went to the doctor, you know, right after. Here's his test, says I didn't test fine. And the letter again and again is, we have our own testing and you tested positive, right? And so there's that kind of very legalistic aspect that it's appealing. It, it appears to be black and white, but as we often know with science, it's not. Um, so you have workers that want to do it. And excuse me, employers that want to do drug testing. And you have employee representatives, unions, who are fighting it uh, because, and they say, you know, if you want to actually keep drugs out of the workplace, you need an employee assistance program. You need to actually address the factor, you know, you need to address the workplace factors that cause people to use drugs, and you need to give people a non-stigmatizing way to help them, because all you're going to do with drug testing is, uh, you know, test people's private lives, uh, you know, in increase surveillance, increase intrusiveness, and you're going to um, alienate your workforce because they're not going to be happy about working in a workforce that has drug testing. Another reason employers really like drug testing is they believe that will discourage drug-using employees from applying there. And I think that's one of the reasons why pre-employment drug testing does become kind of uh, a compromise in a lot of workplaces, and also because unions do not have a duty to represent applicants in most cases, right? So mm-hmm. you, that's kind of where unions will seed. And so random drug testing of workers like who already have a job becomes very rare. Um, but pre-employment drug testing of people who are applicants and, and aren't inside that kind of closed circle of union representation, that becomes pretty common. Uh, that's kind of where these groups kind of try and, and work that out. Um, is there anything in particular that I haven't asked you about that you would like to mention? It's fine if there's not. I don't think so. You asked okay. really good questions, <laughs> honestly. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. And that concludes our podcast part two that Megan Courtney did with Dr. Malloy from Trent University. He was here on a Fishman grant. Uh, The Fishman grant uh, supports researchers to come to Detroit to conduct research on our labor collections. Um, It usually is about $1,000 to come and travel to Detroit. Um, So check back in the fall. That's when our applications go back up. So check our website for that information then. You know, Megan did a great job. You know, she, she held up. In your absence. <laughs> she did. She did. So, you know, she's, she's welcome back anytime. Tales.
Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. All right. We need a, a an outro. Oh, for what? Why? <laughs> you do the outro. You have your canned outro. What? The, why? What are we doing? Absolutely. Of course, Troy. Whatever you want. What do you want? That was part two of the interview between really? Ruther Library Art Reach Alcavir. Art Reach. Words are hard. This is why I stay on this side of the computer. That was an interview that conducted by Megan Courtney, our outreach archivist at the Wayne... At the, 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 Where are we? Who do we work for? I don't know which room we're in anymore. <laughs> There's a horse. Of course. Sorry, I was just confused about where we were, you know? What is life? The universe? 42. 42. We all know that. Even Siri knows that.